us then turn back to the passage we read in the Acts chapter 25. And we'll take as our text, but looking at some of the other section, across the section, take verse 13. Acts 25 and verse 13. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king. King Agrippa is a whole world of psychological study wrapped up in one complicated man. You know how modern analysts, analysts love to trace every manifestation of immoral behavior in someone. They like to psychoanalyze them and find out what went wrong in their childhood, what caused them to become this sort of monster that they have developed into. What family event, what childhood trauma is the real root of this? They would have had a field day with King Agrippa. Agrippa was, in fact, a Herod. His father was the Herod who was eat, eaten of worms because he gave not God the glory. A generation further back again, and his great uncle was Herod Antipas. He was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Go back one more generation from that, and you get to his great-grandfather, Herod the Great. And he was the infamous wicked king who slaughtered all the males two years and under around the region of Bethlehem in his kingdom, lest any of them should prove to be the true Messiah and the king of the Jews, and so take away his throne. That's the family tree of Agrippa. In fact, this is Agrippa II that is here, but we know him better just as Agrippa. And in our section... He goes to visit his old friend Festus and to congratulate Festus on being appointed as the new governor of Judea. At this point, Agrippa is still quite a young man, but he is to prove, in fact, the last of the Herods. Bernice, you notice, is with him. Bernice has the same lineage and heritage. She is the oldest daughter of Agrippa I. And so she is actually brother to this Agrippa here, Agrippa II. Twice widowed, she was now involved in a scandalous relationship with Agrippa II, her brother. Anyway, here comes Agrippa, here comes Bernice with all their pomp and their ceremony, and they exchange formal greetings with the new Roman governor, Festus. And during their visit, they discuss Paul's case. Festus is looking for a way out of his dilemma. He's only just taken up the reins, and this has been thrust upon him, left over, from Felix's time, and he wants to find out what to do. He's going to send Paul to Caesar, but he knows the man to be innocent. And Caesar's not going to enjoy having his time wasted when the man is known to be innocent. But he doesn't know what else to do. And he hopes that Agrippa, with his much closer contact with the Jewish culture and people, being himself part Jewish, would shed some light on the thing for him. For his part, Agrippa is interested enough in the case to want to hear Paul for himself. But what we want to know is, why does the Bible tell us all these things? Why does the Bible want us to know about this? 
I think at least part of the answer must lie in the fact that here we gain insight into how the gospel was being viewed by these two powerful but different men when the gospel was not pressing really upon themselves as they thought. It was merely something happening in their domains and dominions. In the next chapter, we get to the point where Festus tries to divert Paul with an outburst about him being mad, much learning has made thee mad, Paul. Agrippa, in that power portion, is like a, a worm wriggling on the end of the hook, almost himself persuaded to be a Christian. But here in this chapter, they are not so pressed in their spirit with the message. They can afford to be more aloof and calculating and distant and cool in their comments and in their assessments. And we know that it is possible to be like that under the gospel. We know it's possible for some, perhaps even here, to keep distance between yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. Some of you here have a heart full of unforgiven sins and a soul full of unbelief. And I want to ask that you would look with me today at how these men viewed the gospel from what seemed to them like a safe distance. They were observers in their own mind. And see if there are not some similarities we can draw out with your own case this morning. The first truth that we want to look at is that for these men, the gospel is not high in their priorities. Verse 14. So the first point is the gospel is not a priority. Look at verse 14. When there had, they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king. Look at the plain facts. Agrippa and Bernice arrived at, at Caesarea to greet their friend Festus. No doubt they exchanged greetings one with another. They caught up with each other's happenings and even reminisced perhaps over old times together as old friends often do. But Luke specifically records for us that only after many days did the topic of Paul and his predicament rise to be worthy of their consideration. The distinct impression is that, well, after you've caught up with a friend you know a bit, eventually you sort of run out of things to say. You're scraping the bottom of the barrel to keep the conversation going. Oh, I know we'll talk about this, Festus. Let's talk about this fellow Paul. I'm not sure what to do with him. That's how it seemed to be. And Paul's case and Paul's message was not a priority for these men. Here they were. Their time was their own. No one could put demands upon them what they would choose to talk about. And the gospel was easy to forget for days and days and days. Now, there are some of you here today, and this is exactly your case. When the gospel isn't pressing upon you, when no one is standing and, and forcing you as it were from a pulpit or in a home or by witnessing to you to consider it, you keep it far from you. When you're not compelled, perhaps by a sermon that you're sitting under, to give attention to the things of Christ or to tremble for your lost soul, you are usually found without care or thought of it, and you keep it at an arm's length. And so you pass the week until the next time you come to church. That, I would venture to suggest, is just the case for more than one of you here today. It's not that you have no thoughts, don't want to 
uh, you two misunderstand me. I don't think it's that you have no thoughts at all. Not that you're never alarmed about your soul's condition and situation and worry about these things. But it is, you find, your natural disposition, when not being pressed about it, to avoid thought or talk of the gospel as much as you can and put it off for as long as possible. And I want to say that that is not uncommon. But it is a dreadful mistake, a fearful thing. And more to the point, it is in fact a mark of your guilt before the Lord. You are admitting in that you can't be bothered to give time to think about his son who died on the cross. You don't care for most of your life, most of your days, most of your week. You don't want to have to ponder the kingdom of Christ and the rule of Christ, far less the return of Christ and the judgment of Christ. That's how we find Agrippa and Festus keen to keep the gospel quite low down on their priority list. Well, the second truth I want to think, notice here that these men want to believe themselves reasonable in the face of the claims of the gospel. So secondly, they believe their response reasonable. And here we're looking from verse 15 or so down to verse 21. Agrippa believed the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament. He knew all about the questions of Jesus of Nazareth that was vexing Judaism at this time. He was not ignorant of these realities. Festus is newer on the scene, but he also has heard Paul's case. He knows the facts of the case, at least at face value, and he has already discerned the innocence of Paul, who has done nothing worthy of death. So these are not two dummies, Agrippa and Festus. They're not anyone's fools. They both of them have some measure of understanding of this case. And Festus makes it quite clear that he sees himself as a very reasonable, moderating sort of a fellow, responding in a reasonable, measured way to the dilemma caused by him being put on the spot so early in his time by Paul's message. Let's look at the evidence before us. Festus rehearses the matter to Agrippa. He explains each step that he has taken. Why? Because he's eager to vindicate his own actions. As we all are. We all like to think what we've done is reasonable and sensible in the circumstances. So this friend will turn and say, well, I understand your dilemma, Festus. You've done what you could. You've behaved perfectly well. Don't trouble yourself over it. So in verse 15, he heard the charges. In verse 16, he upheld the manner of Roman law. In verse 17, he dealt with the matter quite promptly, at least once uh, he had come down to Caesarea to deal with it. In verse 18, he hints even he could see the malice of the accusers involved. And in verse 19, well, verse 19 is a bit different. He sort of reverses in his own memory Paul's appeal and continued detention. In fact, Paul appeals because he was still being held, though no charges have been proven when he ought to have been let go. But Festus here sort of massages the record so that uh, Paul is being kept because he appealed. 
when in truth he appealed because he was being kept. But overall, it's sort of an apology for his own actions. It's a plea uh, for a friend to vindicate and give sympathy and understanding with his delicate handling of a difficult and fraught case. This had the potential, Festus and, and Felix and Agrippa all knew, the potential this had to cause massive upheaval throughout the region under their watch, and they were the ones who would be held responsible. But the overwhelming sense you get here is that again and again, Festus is wanting us to see how even-handed he has been in the whole thing. In fact, perhaps even inclined towards Paul. Friends, when you are out from underneath the grip of the gospel, when the gospel releases, if you like, its, its hold upon your conscience, then it is easy to believe yourself to be an objective observer of these things. Then you are intelligently and rationally assessing the claims of the gospel for yourself. I remember way back in, in university times, there was a, a girl in a year below me in the same course who treated her religion like that. So having come to university, she decided she should adopt a religion. And she was investigating the claims of Buddhism and of Islam and of Christianity, see which one fitted her lifestyle best. And eventually she chose Christianity. She was not converted. She elected to adopt it and embrace sort of a, a modernistic view of Christianity has been a good and worthy thing to do. She felt herself very moral at having chosen it. She applied her own reason. She sat in judgment over the gospel and decided that that would fit her own lifestyle. But you know, rather when the word has a grip of you, might have been a sermon, it might be in your own readings, it might be as someone has witnessed you, and something is not letting go of your heart. The power of God sometimes can almost nail you to the wall with your guilt, with the fear of hell opening up beneath your feet. When Christ Himself is coming near and with his loveliness and his winsomeness, pressing the claims of his mercy upon you, offering you full, free forgiveness and pardon, offering you life, offering you heaven. Offering you his love, offering you reconciliation. You know full well that under that kind of pressure, you are far from the sort of cool, calm, collected, reasonable, balanced individual that you may at other times pretend to be. Beware, friend, that you are someone who can talk sort of clinically and dispassionately about the gospel to justify your own position as to why you are, in fact, still not a Christian, as to why you are, in fact, still guilty, still hell-bound, still Christless, then beware that your reasonableness is a sham and your commendable impartiality is a delusion. Festus was not the impartial reasonable judge he pretended to be. He was barely in his post 
for a few days and already cowering from Jewish hostility, backing away from doing what he knew was the right thing to do, buckling under Jewish pressure. He knew Paul was innocent. Why did he not let him go? Agrippa, however, wants to hear Paul for himself. It's an interesting phrase. He wants to hear him for himself. I would also hear the man myself, verse 22. You see, no one thinks anyone else can deliberate on difficult matters quite as well as we can ourselves. We all imagine ourselves to be excellent judges and juries in these situations. And so the third truth here is that we prefer to call unbelief honest doubt. So thirdly, unbelief or honest doubt. Festus justifies himself on the grounds of still not being sure about something. Verse 20, because I doubted of such manner of questions. Now, Festus certainly didn't know everything and didn't pretend in fairness to know everything. And the Jews seem to have surprised Festus genuinely with the sort of charges that they brought against Paul. He had assumed it would be something different entirely, that they had such things against him, but no. And Festus may well have wanted to figure out more about where the Jews were coming from in case he had missed something. But he did not doubt of Paul's innocence. He knew it very well. And that was all that should have mattered. The only thing that should have mattered for a judge is whether he had determined the innocence of the person being accused, and Festus had. So all the other reasonableness was just an excuse. This pattern is a feature of the man who is looking at the gospel from a distance, not seeing its personal implication to himself. It's easy from a distance to imagine that what you have is legitimate doubt rather than outright unbelief. It's not unbelief. I just don't know enough yet. It's not unbelief. I just want to know more. Well, friends, for some of you, perhaps not, but some of you here have sat under the gospel for a long time. Have you really not heard enough? Are you really waiting for the more that you determine you need before you accept the claims of the gospel? See, that part of your mind that you think still has a reasonable answer for why you are unsaved and lost, that is not a reasonable anything. It is open rebellion against God. It is called unbelief. There is no reason, reasonable reason, why a sinner who hears the gospel should reject it. None. And we put it very plainly, friends. If God is God and his gospel is truth, then no one, not you, not me, not anyone at all has any justification, has the least reason for rejecting the gospel. 
Nothing sensible can be put forward as to why a lost sinner who is heading for a lost eternity of hell fire would refuse when God offers them mercy. It is not reason to refuse it. It is wickedness and it is foolishness. But to you who are yet unsaved here, friends, how we love you to see you in the house of God. How we delight that you sit under the gospel with us. But when was the last time you concluded that you must be mad? You must have lost your mind for continuing one more day upon the earth in an unsaved condition when the offer of the gospel is made freely to you. Where is the sense? Where is the objective reasonableness in that? But how easy it is to justify yourself. You say, I'm not like that. I'm not a bad person. I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for God to save me, but it's not happening. I see this person being saved and that one beside me being saved, even in my own family being saved, and I've been left. What can I do? I've prayed. Nothing happens. I don't get any answer. I'm not changed. I'm busy, you know. I've got things pressing upon me. I've had trouble. I've had illness. I've had concerns you know nothing about. Every time you raise a justification for carrying on rejecting the gospel, what you're doing is lifting a great big placard, holding it to yourself. And on that placard, you're demonstrating to the world, unbelief lives in my heart. And unbelief never makes sense. Unbelief is by definition senseless. It is void of sense. It is madness masquerading as thoughtfulness, pretending itself to be reasonableness. And in fact, it is sheer folly. Well, then, the fourth truth is that we recognize the centrality of Jesus and his resurrection, even without perhaps understanding it properly. But fourthly, the centrality of Jesus' resurrection. From what we can make out of the record here, Festus was probably behind, lagging behind Agrippa in his awareness and understanding of both Jewish culture and also just what the message of Jesus was all about. But although he was behind Agrippa, Festus had sussed this much out. He had this much crystal clear in his mind. It was about whether this man, Jesus, was alive or not. That's what it was about. Look how vague Festus is when he's trying to describe to Agrippa what's going on. Verse 18. Against whom when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against them of their own superstition. The accusation surprised them. It was questions about their own superstition or religion. But there is one detail that Festus has grasped, and it jumps off the page amidst a sort of sentence or so of rambling. There was a sense about Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. He grasped, he'd honed in on this central problem. That was the nub and the rub. 
Here, Festus is confiding in Agrippa his understanding of the case so far. And he says, I know this much for sure. It all hinges on whether Jesus is alive. And I think everyone who ever heard the gospel, this is the lingering thought. Whatever else you might remember of sermons you hear from time to time, of the truths you were taught in Sunday school, whatever else you may have forgotten, you know that if Jesus is not alive, nothing else that's said in that sermon or in the Bible, on the whole of the gospel, matters for one moment, not for one second. Because if he is not risen, we Christians are of all men most miserable. And there's no need for any of you to listen to one more thing if he is not alive. But friends, if you take nothing else from this sermon, take this, Jesus is alive. He is alive. Everything about the gospel hangs on that one truth. And everything that you can discover and investigate about that question will lead you to the same conclusion that he is alive. He's alive. Alive because the Jews can produce nobody. Why were they so concerned about the sect that had risen now if the body was still in the grave? Why didn't it pass away of itself as Gamaliel's counsel was? Why did these men who were so terrified as to run away before and forsake Jesus and flee, why do they now stand boldly in the temple though they are threatened with death? Because he's alive. Jesus himself said that he would raise, rise again from the dead. And the prophets had said the same thing. And it's happened. Everything about the gospel hangs upon the truth that Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, and his claims are true, and the gospel is true, and you're an unbeliever, if Jesus is alive, you're a rebel to the king of heaven who sits alive upon the throne of the universe. If Jesus is alive, you are facing condemnation for your sins. The sin, the condemnation that he bore at Calvary for all his people's sin. If Jesus is alive, then he is coming again in judgment to judge the world. If Jesus is alive, then God must have accepted his offering. And there really is forgiveness with God. There really is a gospel. And there really is good news to tell those who are not believers, those who are dead in trespasses and sins, if Jesus is alive. Now, Festus, I don't think, fully understood all that it would mean if Paul was right about Jesus being alive. But he understood that it was the core of Paul's message. Maybe you feel you're a little down on knowledge. <laughs> things you don't understand. You don't really grasp 
If someone's to ask you to try to explain what the cross was about, say, I, I'm not quite sure. I struggle to understand these things. If someone was to ask you to explain the Trinity or the incarnation, what would you have to say about these things? How can you even explain the resurrection? So you see, well, you see, I'm just not qualified to make a decision on these things. Better for me to leave it. I can't commit myself to it yet until my understanding is up to it. See, that's that unbelief masquerading as reasonableness again. Now, there are two things to say. Don't keep away from the gospel just because you don't understand things. Just because you don't understand everything. If you know that you need forgiveness, that you're a sinner, that you need mercy from God, and that if you know Jesus somehow is able to give you that, and you need Christ, that is a sufficient starting place. Indeed, that is a wonderful starting place. But also, let me try to help you. If you do indeed want to know why Jesus died and why he is alive now. Jesus died because God said the punishment for sin is death. And so Christ was being punished for sin. So he died. It wasn't his sin that he was being punished for. though. He died in the place of others as a substitute. And if we trust in Jesus, then the worth of what he did is applied to us. And we are forgiven for our sins because he was punished for our sins. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he did that by taking their condemnation, their death and hell, and suffering and enduring all that agony on the cross and in the grave, to the grave. So then for all the people who trust in Jesus or whoever will trust in Jesus, he has paid the price for our sin. He suffered for our sin. And God proves to us all that Jesus fully paid the price to his own perfect acceptance by raising him from the dead. That's why the resurrection matters so much. It proves to us that he has defeated death because death couldn't hold him. And he rises out of the grave. There is nothing left to suffer anymore for anyone who casts themselves upon Christ and trusts in Jesus. If there was, Jesus would have suffered longer. There's nothing left to suffer. We can safely commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus. So it doesn't matter then, friends, if this is your first time here in the gospel or who knows, it may turn out to be our last time here in the gospel. Will you believe on Jesus Christ to save you from your own sins? You see, believing on him is trusting it. What he did is for me. That what he did is acceptable to God. We believe that he is alive because the fact that he is alive is what proves to us that God has ended his wrath and punishment against him for my sins. So I know I will never suffer one day of hell for my sins because Christ is alive, because he has suffered them for me.
Well, the fifth and final truth is that we imagine ourselves competent judges of the gospel and we fail to reckon with our depravity. We often think that we are competent to forget about our sin. Having heard Festus's brief outline of the cause of Paul, Agrippa is keen to hear for himself more about this strange message. He was keen perhaps also to sort of show off in front of his friend Festus. No doubt he was pleased at being given his place as the one more expert in Jewish background and customs, far more than the inexperienced Festus. Perhaps Agrippa thought he would soon enough help Festus out of his dilemma with his own expertise in these matters. You see, there is this thought in men and women whenever they are dealing with the gospel from a safe sort of a distance. They think they can judge for themselves. They think that they can come and assess the situation objectively. They think they're in control and it's for them to sit in judgment over the gospel. And they have the power of veto of saying yea or nay. Perhaps this naivety affected some of you here even before you came to the house of God today. Perhaps determined, you were determined to come and sit and hear and listen even, but to go back out unscathed, as it were, by the claims of Christ, unaffected by the power of the Holy Spirit, untouched by the thunderings of hell, maybe, or unmoved by the appeals of mercy and love. But up close and personal with the gospel, you are forced to give way from a proud seat of loftiness. You soon see you're not the one in the driving seat here. You are the one rather being examined. You're the one being searched. You're the one being probed. You're the one being commanded. You're the one being pressured. You're the one being warned. You're the one being condemned even. And yet you're also the one being spared a little longer by the long suffering of God. Who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the scene is set, if you like. Paul now stands ready to speak. Festus and Agrippa and Bernus even, they think they are now ready to hear. They've been briefed thoroughly. Do you really think that Agrippa was ready for the message that he was about to hear? Do you think he expected for one moment that in a few minutes he would be saying, I'm almost persuaded to be a Christian? Do you think that Festus at any point thought he was going to have an outburst? And accuse Paul of madness. You think they were ready to hear the gospel? And are you ready to hear the gospel? Are you ready to hear the message of God to your soul? Hear this. Jesus is alive. God has forgiven the sins of all who trust in Jesus. And he will forgive the sins of whosoever will yet trust him. Where do you stand? You are not an objective judge over the gospel. You are being judged by it. Where will you sit under the gospel's warning today? May God bless his word. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we thank thee that there is a gospel to hear.
We thank thee, O Lord, that Jesus is alive, that death did not and could not hold him. We thank thee, Lord, that thou thyself hast sheathed again thy sword from all the outpouring of thy wrath that our substitute has taken it for us. We pray then that thou would bless to us the claims of Christ once more this day. We might not put off any longer dealing with them for ourselves, that our souls might sweetly invite the Savior to come in and to give us life that never ends. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing psalm of praise in is Psalm number 81 from verse 8 to 10. Three stanzas, Psalm 81 from verse 8 to 10. O thou, my people, give an ear. I'll testify to thee, to thee, O Israel, if thou wilt but hearken unto me. In midst of thee there shall not be any strange God at all, but unto any God unknown thou bowing down shalt fall. I am the Lord thy God, which did from Egypt land thee guide. I'll fill thy mouth abundantly. Do thou it open wide. Psalm 81, 8 to 10. <clears throat> o thou, my people, give as usual, prayer meeting on Thursday at 7.30 and on Saturday at 7.30. Sabbath serves next Lord's Day at the usual times of 11 and 6.30. These serves will be conducted by Reverend John McLeod, retired. There's also a new daily reading book on the Gospel of John that's been written by Reverend John Morrison. That book is available at the door. It's the first of two volumes. Uh, we have received a limited number of these books at the moment. But more can be ordered if necessary. The price is £10 and payment can be left in envelope marked daily reading. So if you wish to take one of these, you're welcome to do so. And also, Reverend Gavin Beers has accepted nomination as moderator designate of the 
2023 General Assembly. Please do remember Mr. Beers as he prepares to take up these duties. And the Youth Fellowship uh, S5 to 25s meets after the evening service at the home of Mark and Ray MacDonald. And the topic there is the internet and social media, some biblical principles. And then the Sabbath school resumes on the 8th of January after the end of the holidays. These are all the intimations and they are subject to God's will. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost rest on and abide with you all, both now and ever. Amen.